0: Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 19? Psalm 19. So, we've taken the summer to uh, work our way through several of the Psalms, and at my last count, I think we've gone through 16 of them this summer. Um, and Lord willing, you've been reading uh, through the Psalms yourself in a personal way, and hopefully that has had a huge impact in your life. Psalm 19. So I entitled the message Getting to Know God, and I guess if I were to ask you, um, do you know God, I guess you could answer that question in one of several ways. Um, Some of you would say, no, I don't know him, that uh, you come to church because you've been encouraged to come or maybe even forced to come uh, to church, but you really don't have a personal knowledge or a personal relationship with him. Some of you would say, yes. I do know him, and you know him in a personal way. The reality is, is that all of us know God, and hopefully we'll see that this morning. As David was writing this psalm, he is writing this psalm about humanity, and he's writing the psalm to humanity about God, and they, he wanted them to know who God was. It's a, it's a praise psalm. It's a prayer psalm. It's a, it's a wonderful psalm of um, Glorying to God and what he's done in his creation, glorying to God and what he's done in his commandments and his word, glorying God and what he's done in David's life himself. It's amazing. You know, as I was preparing for this uh, message, I started wondering, are there really irreligious people in this world? The vast majority of people would say that they believe in God. Now, what God that is and how they would describe Him and what that God does may change radically, but the reality is the vast majority of people are not atheists. The vast majority of people out there are not non believers in a deity or some higher being. They believe there's something other and above. David helps us to define what the biblical God is, who He is what he's done, what he's done for us, and what is required of us. So hundreds of religions in this world that dominated. How do we know which religion is right? How do we know which religion is wrong? How do we know who God really is? How do we know how we're supposed to serve him? Well, this morning, there are three basic points I want to try to cover this morning in Psalm 19. The first one is that God can be known naturally. God can be known naturally. And by that, I mean that God can be known through nature, through the creation, that he can be known in a certain way in what he's created. Well, the second thing I want you to consider is that God can be known scripturally, that God is known in a special way through his scripture, and that as he's given this scripture, it's a wonderful gift that he's given to humanity, and in humanity, what he's done is he's shown us who he is and what he's done and what he requires of us. So God can be known naturally. God can be known scripturally. And the last thing I want you to consider is that God can be known personally, that you can have a personal relationship with God. So let's jump in and endeavor to go through these points this morning. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies above proclaim his handiwork. There seems to be a very clear call in nature that speaks to the fact that there's an existence of God. What David argues here is that in heaven and the skies above, I can almost envision David sitting outside on a beautiful day like we're going to have. We're going to go down to our property and pray over that property. We're going to fellowship with one another at the picnic today, and we're going to be out there in God's nature. And I can imagine him looking up in the skies and just uh, enamored by God and just awe by what he's done, looking at the sun and looking around at the creation, the mountains and the trees and the animals and all these things, and thinking that there has to be somebody that is a designer behind this. This didn't happen by mistake. And then I can imagine David sitting there at the picnic all day long, and now it's nighttime. and guess what happens? The sun seems like it's gone away, and what happens? The stars come out. And the moon, and as he sees these stars, and millions upon millions, he couldn't even imagine. We know that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies, and that our galaxy is just one of myriads of galaxies that are out there. And the amazing thing is that God named every star. He put every one of those into existence. And that is awe-inspiring. And as David looks, he sees this clear call. And it says that the heavens declare or proclaim. There's an announcement that is there that as you look at nature, it calls out to you in a very clear call that there's somebody greater than you. There's somebody greater than me that is out there. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the handiwork. Glory is interesting. The word glory means weightiness or worthiness. In essence, what the the creation is saying is this, is that God is powerful, he's wise, he's worthy of honor and worship. In Psalm 24, it says this, verses seven through 10. It says, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. You remember Pastor Doug, I think it was preached through this one. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. That David, when he looked at this, and he looked at creation, he saw a God that was worthy and weighty. He is a God that is awe-inspiring. Is that the God that you serve? Can you turn with me to Psalm chapter 50? Because he, he uses the same phrase in Psalm 50 a little bit differently. Actually, asap in this Psalm, Psalm 50, verse 6. He says, The heavens declare what? His righteousness, for God himself is judge. So as we look up into the skies, what we see is that God is a powerful God. It's a clear call that there's a God that is in control. He's clear. He's a God who is worthy of weight and honor. He's a God who is righteous and a judge. It's a clear call. But there's a second thing I want you to consider about knowing God naturally. There's a constant call here. Verse 2. It says, day to day, it pours out speech, and night to night, it reveals knowledge. It doesn't stop. It's unceasing. It's nonstop. It's uninterrupted. That day after day, as you look, and as the stars come out, it, resembles, it shows you that there's a God. The sun comes up, and it shows you that there's a God. The animals that come out of the woods, the bears that come out of the woods, show you that there's a God. The trees, the landscape that is there, show you that there is someone that's greater than yourself. It's a constant call. It's there every single day. We could walk out of this room every single day and see that there's a God that's there. God can be known naturally because there's a clear call. There's a constant call. But there's there's a common call. Verse 3. He says, and 4, there's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. In essence, what David is saying is that there's a common and universal call here. It's not only clear in the fact that there's a creator. It's not only the fact that it is uh, constant in the fact that it's never-ending. The fact is, is that there is this common call that is here, and it's for all of humanity. Because the sun rises here where we live, but it rises All across the world. The stars and the moon are there. Animals are there. Maybe different animals. Maybe different habitation. But the reality is that there is this constant call and this common call to everybody that is out there. It's universal. They don't have to speak in words. The the nature doesn't speak with words, but it speaks to your eyes. C.H. Spurgeon had this interesting quote. He said this, their teaching is not addressed to the ear and it is not uttered in sounds. It is pictorial and it's directed to the eyes and to the heart that every person in this world can look out into creation and they have to come to a place where they have to admit that there's a God or they'll suppress it. We'll talk about that a little bit later. There's a natural call. God can be known naturally. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth into the ends of the earth. In him, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man running its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Well, let's pull out a couple of points here. He says at the end of verse four, he says, In them, the them there is in the heavens, He, God, has set forth a tent. Now, what is a tent? A tent is kind of like a habitation. It's a place where you could reside. It's a place where you can go in. He has set a tent for the sun. Now, the theologians are kind of debated over what this could mean. It could mean that the sun is set there amongst the stars, amongst the universe, and it's central, and it has tented itself in the midst of our universe. Could be that. Or it could be that as David was sitting there watching the sun during the day, and then it would seem to go away and the stars would come out, it would seem as though you and I, when we finish our day, what do we do? We go to our homes at night. We tent in our homes, and then we come back out in the morning. Whichever way it is, whether it's the sun there in the middle of our creation or the sun residing or going into the um, tent at night, in darkness, it doesn't matter. What David is saying is this: that that sun reveals a number of things. It's a beautiful creation of God for you to show you that there's a great God that is behind it. He uses a couple of illustrations about the sun. He says not only does it encamp in intense, but he says it's like a bridegroom. How many of you have been to a wedding, right? And at the wedding, oftentimes you have this groom that is standing down at the front of the church or wherever, and down the aisle comes his bride, and as the groomsmen come out, you can always catch this groom, right? This groom has got his eyes laser-focused on his bride, and his bride is coming down the aisles. He's not even thinking about anyone else there. He is seeing that bride and the glory that is there on this groom's face, and the joy of that woman is going to become mine. She is mine, and we could be together, and the joy that is there that is amazing. Well, he's saying that that's what almost happens with the sun. But there's a second illustration he uses. He says it's like a strong man who runs a race, it's like an athlete, a champion. An athlete or a champion becomes a champion because they have become disciplined and consistent in their lives. And as the sun is very consistent, it's there and it's gone. It's there and it's gone. As we have rotated, as the earth rotates, that sun is there. Day after day after day. What David is arguing is this, that as you look to the clouds and as you look to the stars and as you look to the heavens, there's something amazing and consistent that is there. David, on the end of verse 6, says this, There is nothing hidden from its heat. That the sun is blazing in the sky and there's nothing hidden. C.S. Lewis thinks that this is the central line in this whole psalm. He thinks it's the central line because he says, here's the point that the sun in nature burns down on you, every single one of us, and you can't hide from it, so the word, as he's going to describe it in the second half of the psalm, burns down in every single person that reads it, and it exposes us. James Boyce said this, "'The line links the witness of the physical creation "'to the witness of the word. "'For the scriptures are likewise penetrating, "'warming, life-giving, "'while they're searching and testing and purifying.'" So what do we learn about God from our nature? What do we learn about God naturally? Well, the first thing I think we learn about God naturally is that his glor- he's glorious. It talks about his magnificence, his splendor, his beauty, his grandeur. He's just glorious. That if there is a God that creates this beauty that is out there, he must be greater than the beauty that we see with our eyes. He's glorious. Well, there's a second thing I think we learn from seeing creation. We see his power. There's a control, there's an influence, there's a supremacy or an authority. There's a rule that's there. That as you look at creation, even if you don't know the God of the Bible, you will see that there's a God who's glorious and you see a God that's in control. But there's a third thing I want you to consider. You see a God who's consistent. Because as the sun rises and it sets, it rises and it sets it rises and it sets. He's very, this creation is very consistent, so you would assume that the maker of that creation is faithful and consistent as well. Now, as you look at the nature, you'll learn a lot about God. But you won't learn about morality, you won't learn about your responsibility to that God, you won't learn about salvation from nature. We need a deeper revelation for that, and that's what God has given us in the next section. That's what he's given us in the Word. David jumps from the beauty of the creation and knowing God naturally to the second point, God can be known scripturally. God can be known scripturally. He says it in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And he goes through a series of descriptive statements about the Scriptures. Now, a couple of things I wanna talk to you about before we kinda look at these descriptive points. The first thing that we see is this, that if you go back to verse one, there seems to be a name change when we're talking about God. In verse one, it's the only time in the verse six verses that he even names God, and he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In Hebrew, this is the word El or Elohim, and what it means is the creator God, not intimate, just the creator God. So when David was talking about creation, he was seeing God as as transcendent, as a God who is the creator, the almighty God. But then David makes a switch here in the last eight verses of the the, um, psalm. He uses the word Lord, and if you remember several weeks ago, I told you about the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And if you remember, we had talked about that is the covenantal name of God. That is the relational name of God. That is the name that God gave his people that is special to him. It's kind of like if you were to go around and call me pastor and say, hey, pastor, that's a title. It's distinct. But there's something different about calling me James, right? That there's an intimacy that is there that you call me by my name, right? And in a different way, but similar, God's name God is the professorly name. And then we have the intimate name that he's given you Yahweh, Jehovah. And David uses that word eight times he does it two times in verse seven two times in verse eight two times in verse nine and one time in verse 14 what he is trying to tell you is this you can know God just not naturally you can know him in an intimate way but you have to know him through scripture so you can know God naturally generally as a creator he's glorious he's powerful he's consistent but with that alone you'll never know him deeply you'll never know him intimately you'll never know him relationally. We must have more revelation to know him in that way, and that's how God shows us in Scripture. Now, for some of us, we're students, and we're going back to school soon. And I want, you remember where it talked about in school, we talked about nouns, and we talked about adjectives and verbs. Remember those from school? Some of you are shaking your head like, I don't know what he's talking about. And some of you really should know. But if you remember, nouns were those um, names that we give things, a person, a place, or a thing. And the adjectives were those descriptive words to describe what's happening and a verb is a result or an action. Well, David does that exactly as he's explaining the scriptures here. He gives a name for the scriptures. Then he gives you an adjective a resulting description of it, and then he tells you how it results. So stay with me. Watch it. It's pretty easy. He says in verse 7, the law, which is the name, what is the law? The law means Torah or instruction. How does he describe the law? He says the law is perfect, complete, covers all aspects of life. And then what does it result in? It revives the soul. It makes you alive again. It brings you to life. It corrects your path. It puts you on the right step. So the law, perfect, brings life. The second one in verse 7 he says, The testimony, testimony means statutes, it means truths attested by God. What's the description? Is sure. Sure means solid or trustworthy. It's reality. And what does it do? What's the result? It makes wise the simple. It teaches you. It teaches you to act wisely. It it takes a naive or young person, it grows him up to wisdom. Third one he does, verse 8. The precepts, which are directions or orders of the Lord, are right. Now, when he's talking about right here, he's not talking about right versus wrong. What he's talking about is straight, a path that's straight that these precepts, if you follow these precepts, it will take you down a path in life that is straight. And what will it produce in your life? These precepts will call joy into your heart. Mercy of joy, merriment, inner inclination, a disposition deep within that there will be a joy that's resided there if you trust the precepts and follow the path that it's given you. The fourth thing he gives us is the commandments of the Lord. Verse 8, the end of verse 8, he says, The commandments of the Lord are what? Pure. Now, the commandments are precepts or prohibitions. And when he talks about pure, it's unmixed with flaws. There's no flaws that are there, it's unmixed with evil. And what's the result? It enlightens the eyes, it makes you active and alert. C.H. Spurgeon saw those four first elements as the process of your salvation. Because in step number one of your salvation, you need to be born again, reviving your soul. You need to be born alive, regenerated. And then step number two is that after you've been born again, what do you do? Then you need to get into God's word so that you've made wise. And then as you get wise and you follow God's word, what happens? Next, number two, you start to follow his way and you find joy in your life. Not that this life is easy and not that there isn't sorrow, but there's a joy in this journey. And then finally, he saw that there was light, enlightenment in your eyes, that you became active and alert. He saw that as a process of salvation. I think he's right. The first four of these elements are talking about what God's word does to humanity. The last two of these elements, he talks about the qualities of God's word. See the nouns. It says in verse nine, the fear of the Lord. Now, when you think of fear, you can think of dread, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a reverence for God. The fear of the Lord is what? What is the description? It's clean. It's without error. There's no lack. There's no mistake. There's no insufficiency. And what does it do? What's the result? It endures forever. See, what is pure does not fade. It does not decay. It does not break down. The reason why we have breakdown is because there's impurity. And when you have a word that's pure, it will never break down. You remember Jesus had said that you could take the smallest stroke and the least portion of his word, it will never pass away. His word will last for all of eternity. The last quality he gives us about the word is the rules of the Lord. Your version may use the word ordinances. Basically, it means judgments or verdicts. It means God's evaluation of your thoughts, your inner motives, your heart, your actions. And what does he say? is true and righteous altogether. And then David kind of goes off in a praise thing. He He says in verse 10, more to be desired than they, than gold, than even fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of honeycomb. Do you see the word that way? I think I've mentioned this before. I've taken a poll of my average client that I work with in my Christian counseling center. The average client has never read this book cover to cover. I would wonder how many of you have ever done that. I was reading, and I was going to bring you a bunch of stats this morning. I don't want to do that. But if you go on and look at the stats when it comes down to people that know the Word, people that sit in churches every single morning, every single Sunday, and they don't know this book. The people have bled and died to give you this book, and we hardly ever read it. And this is God's love letter to you. This is a letter that he's given you to tell you who he is and to tell you what he's done and to tell you what he requires of you. And we don't read it. And what David was saying is this, that if you ever want to know God personally and intimately, you need to read the letter that he's given you. Because you'll never see that God in nature alone. You need to see that God in Scripture. But what do we learn about this from David just in this section? We learn that God's word is authoritative. It sets an authority in your life. Whether you like it or not, every eye, every person will be exposed to the light of his word. In Hebrews, it says this. Hebrews 4. It says this. I can find it. I lost it. I can't believe I lost it. Oh, there it is. (laughs) The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must all give an account. What David was saying is that God's word is authoritative. But there's a second thing that we learned from this section, that God's word is without error. It's without error. Now, there's a lot of people in Scripture that do bad things and wrong things. There are a number of things that are said in Scripture by those people that were wrong. But Scripture in in itself has recorded that history correctly. And the Bible that you hold in your hand, you can be trustworthy, that you can trust it. So the first thing is that God's word is authoritative, second word is that God's word is without error, third word thing is that God can be trusted. But the fourth thing is the big thing that I don't think that modern humanity wants to hear. God's word must be obeyed. And time after time I sit with my clients, and oftentimes I will sit with them and I will hear about the struggles in their lives. And I'm not a rocket scientist. It's pretty easy. You look at how people think, you look at how people speak, and you look at how people live, and you compare it to the Word of God, and you can figure out why they're off course. And what my goal is, is to help people to see that there's truth here that there's a straight path here. There's, there's a path that can produce joy and peace and hope in you individually, in your family, in your marriages, in your life, if you follow it. Amen. God's word says that it's authoritative. God's word says that it's without error. God's word said it can be trusted, but God says he must be obeyed. Modern humanity is going to recoil from this. Now, if you give me a God of love, I'll take that. If you give me a God that's going to give me my best life today, I'll take that. But if you give me a God that I have to submit to and obey, I don't want to hear that. And that's what the world says. But that's not what we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should be saying. We should be eating up this word because we love it. God can be known naturally. God can be known scripturally. But then the third thing I want you to consider is that God can be known personally. See, David went through all of those nouns and those adjectives and those verbs about the word because he wants you to know that you can trust this word and believe it. Eat it up. Eat it more than honey. Eat it more than the greatest riches in this world. It's yours. But David also knew that when he stood before the word, that word revealed things about himself. As the writer to the Hebrews said, that you will be exposed as you read the word. That's probably why we don't like to read it at times. Because what it does is it shows me me. It shows me my thoughts. It shows me my intentions. It shows me my motives. And it displays the things that are wrong. But it also points me to the thing that is right. The one that is right. God has revealed himself. He's called me to humbly respond to his word as he preaches it. Humbly respond to his word as he teaches me. And David begins this section with a prayer. He says in verse 2, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also for presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David is praying for forgiveness, and David is praying for freedom. He's praying for forgiveness from the sins that are being exposed as he's reading the word. And he's praying for freedom from the bondage to those sins. That's what we should be doing the same as well. And David breaks down the different types of sins. He begins in verse 12 and he says, errors. Have you committed errors before? I have. Innocently committed, wrongly done, oversights, lapses. There was no real motive that was in your heart to do it, but what you did was an error. What you believed was wrong, that's an error. Well, David saw that as the first thing, but he didn't stop there when he looked at the category of sin. He didn't just say that they were errors, wrongly uh, or wrongs innocently committed. He saw hidden faults. He says, declare me innocent from what? Hidden faults. These are the things that are unknown to you, but known to God. Maybe there are things in your personality. Maybe there are things in your belief system. I don't know what it is, but there are things that are hidden deep within that you may not even know that you do. Things that you do that are wrong, things that you believe that are wrong, and God can see them very clearly in your life, and I may not be able to see them. And David says, God, declare me innocent from even those hidden faults. You remember when C.S. Lewis said that the pivotal line in the psalm was that nothing is hidden under the sun? He's using that same parallel over here. Nothing is hidden from you, God, that you see all of my sin. You see everything that I do. You see it clearly. So the errors, the wrongly committed, um, innocently committed sins, the lapses. Second, the hidden faults. Third, he says, keep back your servant from what? Presumptuous sins. Willful sins in the NIV. This is arrogance. This is an arrogant disregard, a deliberateness. And he says, keep me from great transgressions. What he's saying is this, that there are some times that I have done some sins that I'm just not even aware of. But then there are other times I know that this is wrong, and God, I don't care. I'm going to do it myself. And you've done that. I know I've done that many times. When I know that it is absolutely wrong, and I do it anyway. And that's what he's talking about, presumptuous sins. He says, God, keep me from those presumptuous sins. Do you see who he's turning to to talk about changing here? He's not talking about himself. He is praying to God for freedom. He says, who can discern my errors? Keep me, God. Deliver me, God. He is turning to God to keep him out of the sin. But then there's the fourth sin type that I think I see here. He talks about errors and hidden faults and presumptuous sins. The fourth one is here. He says, let them, at end of verse 13, let them not have dominion over me. Dominion over me. We, biblical counselors, we call that life dominating sins. Life-dominating sins are sins that you have practiced so consistently in your life that it becomes a habitual pattern. The world may call them addiction. They may call them certain things. But basically, it is a pattern that you've done time after time after time in your life. And now it has become a sin that now controls you. It now enslaves you. And if you persistently practice this sin, it starts to have greater and greater dominion over you and inherently you don't have the ability to let go of this sin. You can't change it on your own. You need to look to one that is going to set you free, and you can need to look to one that is going to forgive you, and that's only person is Christ. God can be known naturally. God can be known scripturally. God can be known personally. David saw his sin, and he said, God, I need your forgiveness. I want to be blameless. I want to be innocent. I think David is doing two things here. I think David is looking at justifying faith, saving faith, that for every person that has ever trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ has, that you are declared not guilty in God's eyes. You're blameless and you're innocent. But then there's a second thing I think he's looking at. He's looking at sanctifying work, that God, I want you to actually make me godly. We'll see that in a moment. But let's look at the, save, the justifying work. He says, God, he, he says, praise that he be blameless and innocent. He wants to be declared righteous. There's this um, doctrine, and we call it justification. And justification means this, that God declares you righteous in his sight, even in the midst of your sin. And how does he do that? Because what God did for you in Christ was this, that Christ lived a perfectly righteous life for you because I could not live a perfectly righteous hour in my life. And as God, Christ, lived that perfectly righteous life for you day after day, what God can do is credit what Christ did for you on onto your, onto your account. So that as God looks at you on your worst day, God still infinitely loves you, totally accepts you, and completely forgives you if you are in Christ. It's an amazing God doctrine. Justification is not based on my character or conduct. It's based on the character and conduct of Christ. It's not based on the fact that I didn't have hidden sins. I do have hidden sins, but Christ never did. I do presumptuous sins, but Christ never presumptuously sinned. He never sinned at all, and I stand in his righteousness. It's amazing. And Christ fully and completely satisfied the justice of God. God's anger and his wrath for my sin and yours was paid for in Christ. You're free if you trust in him. I am not guilty. And what David is crying for is that, God, I want to know what that feels like to be not guilty. I know you say it, but then he doesn't just want that. He wants to actually live more righteous. He says in verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Your words are the outward messages that you do, the outward actions. Some of you are positionally righteous. You are declared righteous because you have trusted in Christ, but you are not practically righteous. You're just not living godly. God says that I, David says, I want even the words that I speak to be pleasing to you. I want not just the words, the messages of my mouth. I want the motives of my heart to be pleasing to you. I want the inner workings of my heart to, that as you look at it, God, you are just pleased with it. Is that you? He uses the word pleasing, NIV, acceptable, English Standard Version. It's the language of the sacrifice. The sacrifice is brought before the priest and offered. Is it pleasing and is it acceptable? And it was sacrificed. Well, Christ's sacrifice was pleasing and acceptable. And what God wants, what David wants desperately, is that as God looks down in him practically, that he'd see godliness. He desires a life to be worshipful. Last couple of things I want you to consider about this passage. David knew that he needed to look to someone other than himself to sustain him. David knew that he needed to look to someone other than himself to save him. He says, oh Lord, he goes back to that covenantal name, and he says, my rock and my redeemer. What's a rock? A rock is a foundation, a support, a basis. David didn't know the name of the redeemer. We do, Jesus Christ. He didn't. But he was looking forward to that Redeemer coming. We look backwards to what the Redeemer has done. But David is crying out for this rock, this sure foundation. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Not only is he looking at Jesus Christ as his rock, but he looks at Jesus Christ as his Redeemer. A redeemer is an avenger. It's one, he's one who ransoms another, and it's usually with a price. And we know what Scripture says, that the price that Jesus Christ paid for your salvation, if you trust in him, is what? His own precious blood. So he looked at him, like Jesus is the precious redeemer. There is a redeemer. Jesus, God's own son. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah. Holy One. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, hope for sinners slain. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and sending us your Spirit until your work is done. So what does David tell us in the Psalm? David tells us in the Psalm in closing that um, God can be known naturally. That as you look at the world outside, there is a created order that's there. And we can learn that God is glorious. And we can learn that God is in control and powerful. And we can learn that we need to submit to whoever he is. But we don't learn anything morally about him. Then David says that God can be known scripturally. And that in scripture, he gives us a series of elements to describe what scripture is. But scripture is basically authoritative. It can be trusted. It's without error. And we're called to obey it. And then finally, he says that God can be known personally. And I guess this is the cry of my heart for you this morning. I asked you in the beginning, do you know God? And the reality is, the true answer is that all of us have to say yes in one way. All of humanity knows God because they have a creation and the conscience shows that there is a God. But the problem is, is that maybe a guilty knowledge of God. I know that there's a God, but I don't know Him. I don't. There's a God, and I haven't. Don't know how to appease Him. I don't know how to make Him happy. I don't know how to be righteous in His eyes. All humanity is there. Some humanity, if you ask the question, "Do you know God?", will have to say no. They don't know God, and they're being honest there because they've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. They don't have a personal, intimate relationship with God. Maybe that's some of you that's here this morning. But there are some of us that sit here this morning who know Christ, have trusted in him. If you're one of the ones that have never trusted in Christ, I pray this morning that you won't harden your heart. I pray this morning that maybe as we go to the picnic this afternoon, I want you to just look around at creation and think about the one that's greater than you. And maybe it will be good for you to consider Sunday School next Sunday for your children, and adult Bible fellowship for you to come. Two great studies. Uh, Pastor Doug's going to be doing a study on living by the book, learning to understand the book and apply it. I'll be getting the opportunity to take you through God's Word to show that there are biblical solutions to the persistent problems that you have. Pastor Tim is going to be with the teens and the parents on practical applications of the study of James in your life, how you can take the principles from James and apply it in your life. For our young people, there are going to be great Sunday school programs. Come, hear God's word. Don't harden your heart. The only one that can save you is Christ. The only one that can sanctify you is Christ. In closing, I want you to consider a couple of points. One, we need to look at God's work in creation. And marvel and have awe. So when you go out there today, I want you to see God and let it humble you that God is sovereignly in control. He's done an amazing work. The second thing I want you to consider is this. When we worship, we can worship God in the creation, just don't worship the creation. What we've made a problem with today is that humanity starts to worship the trees or the mountains or the birds or the animals and they're missing the creator shame on us. Third thing I want you to consider is to start to learn the word. In Hosea it says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. In 2 Timothy 2:15 2, it says study to show thyself approved nice king james version study to show thyself approved a workman that needeth not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Become a student of the word the first thing you could do is start to read it. Study it. When was the last time you memorized any part of it? When was the last time you chewed on it and meditated God's word? When was the last time you got into a good Bible study, personally or corporately? Obey. And recognize that God loves you infinitely, accepts you totally and forgives you completely if you trust in Christ. I pray that you would hear that this morning. Lord, I pray.